Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. I'm Robert Kelly, one of the pastors here at the church. Welcome to uh, our services, and if we haven't yet met, I'm really glad that you're here as we continue in our series called The Me I Want to Be. It's a series based on a book by John Ortberg. If anything in this series is of interest to you and you find something uh, you know, that you really like, uh, we stole it from John Ortberg. And it's much better said in the book, so you should get it and read it because it really is um, a, great, uh, a great resource. So uh, kind of a, a little pop quiz from last week, if you were here. Uh, we had a mini creed for 2018. Let's see if anyone can remember what the mini creed was. What did we? What, what was it last week? Anyone? What do we say? There is a God. You're not Him, and He adores you. Yes, that's right. There is a God, and it's not you, and He adores you. And by this, we meant to state just how dependent we are on this good and this powerful God. We actually talked uh, last week about how many of us live our lives as if some accomplishment or some achievement will be the door to our happiness, contentment, or peace. And we have this idea that when this happens, whatever this is, and it's all different things for all different people here. But we think when this thing happens, then all will be well with my soul. And we grab onto that lie. And we try to live our lives that way. But life experience teaches us that that's not actually the way it works. That true joy and contentment have to be independent of our circumstances. Instead, we saw that surrendering to a good and powerful God through faith in Jesus Christ was the doorway to become the best version of ourselves. That was by way of review. If we want to press deeper and become the me that I want to be, then we have to start by evaluating we, where we are at right now. We have to understand the place of your spiritual soul. Where, what is your condition? So maybe for some of you here, you've never surrendered to Jesus. You've actually never made that decision to put him at the center of your existence. For the rest of the, the message, I would love for you to consider the question, why am I resisting him? What is going on in my own soul that I'm resisting the call of Jesus? There's something going on. There's some reason. Maybe you haven't quite articulated it yet. I mean, do you have like a better offer out there or something? Like, you know, you, 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 we have this grand narrative, and I'd like you to consider whether or not this Jesus would be worthy of your surrender. 
For others here, though, you have, in fact, already surrendered your life. You remember maybe way back some time ago when you actually became a Christian. You came to faith, you accepted Christ, and you were really excited. You started thinking more about God and reading the Bible and getting excited about praying and singing songs. And now you would come to church and you would sing the songs and you'd be like, wow, they mean something to me now. And your heart was starting to be impacted by those spiritual practices. You're starting to love God more and love people more. You're growing in Christ. You're, you're hoping to serve the world in some way. Great. Even some things in your life start to change. Some nasty habits are starting to be replaced with better habits. This is exciting to you. Seeing the old you start to weaken and a new you take its place. Maybe you're starting to see yourself grow in patience or in contentment. Great. You may even start to tell people about your faith. You're so excited, you just can't help yourself. You're starting to tell them what Jesus has done for you. And of course, all of this gets you very excited because you're actually becoming the person that you want to be, and you feel a shift going on in your soul. It's great. But over time, things start to sputter out. Maybe you don't fall too far back. You know, you'd given up going out and getting drunk on weekends and doing things that you regret, and you're not, go you're not going back there. You know, maybe, you know, you don't post any more of that racist crap on your, your Facebook, you know, you kind of outgrew that, and now you're not going back. Great, fantastic. You're angry, you go home, you don't kick the dog anymore. This is good stuff, right? Like we're moving forward. So you still have some of the signs on the outside of a transformed life. But you're just not so sure anymore about what's going on on the inside. Might be where you're at this morning. I suspect, though, that a number of you, it's a different place. You sort of consider yourself a Christian, and you really always have. But it really just doesn't matter that much. It's just sort of it's never really been that significant. You're, you're pretty sure it doesn't really impact your life. I mean, it doesn't change the way you live or the way you talk or the way you think. It doesn't impact how you use your time or your money. It's just really just not that significant. And you sort of have a suspicion that when you really need it, it also won't be very significant. When you start to get pushed when you're struggling, when you're suffering, or maybe when you're facing death, you sort of have a suspicion that it's just not really going to be that significant. I've seen this. In fact, just this week, I had a great opportunity. It was an old friend. It was a couple that had come to the church for a while, years and years and years ago, a, very, a much older couple. And life did its thing, and we kind of moved apart in different ways. And I hadn't heard from them for a very long time, for, for some years. Uh, that I, I really hadn't spent any significant time with him. And out of the blue, I get a call saying that the husband has died. He was a devout follower of Christ. Uh, the, well, the funeral was right here. I was really excited uh, to be able to be a part of it with them and to you know, kind of say goodbye. Thing is, I didn't know anybody at this funeral. All, I only knew the two of them. And so I guess really I only knew the one of them at the funeral because he was dead. So like, you know, so... You know, so we were sitting there just hanging out and, you know, with, and I was talking to her and then I was trying to get a feel for the family and what they kind of knew about him and stuff. And 
one after another, they started talking about what a great guy he was and how fantastic and how deep his faith was and how profound a Christian. And so a good part of the family knew this about him. And it was really exciting because it's exactly what I would have expected. And then a, then a couple of them started talking about how he died. Not like what he died of. I still actually don't even know. No one even talked about that. But how he died was important to them. And they talked about how he entered the sickness and he had a calm and a peace and that he, he entered into his last days and even right up to the very moment that he died, that he breathed his last, he just had a settled confidence in his Savior. Just a joy even. And he just entered into eternity, well, exactly how you would expect a follower of Christ to enter eternity. I got up to speak my little devotional I did after that and I, I commented on it and I said, I would have expected nothing less from him. What else would you expect from a follower of Christ who understands what they're about to experience in the joy of heaven and the presence of God? Of course there would be peace. It would be fantastic. I was really excited about it to hear that it had really manifest in his life. And afterwards, a couple of ladies come up and they actually they, they, they got their own little miracle because they asked me if I had a business card. It was relatives. They were like his nieces or something that and I had business cards and that was a miracle because I don't ever have business cards I can't even believe I had them it was like a god moment and they're like do you have business cards I'm like who has business cards I, I think I do so I handed them out I gave them like well what, what do you want the business cards I said we'd love to give you a call I'm like about what they said well you know we have been more distraught over his death than he was we have been we've had more anxiety and more fear than he did. I don't have that kind of peace. Now, here's the thing. They would have viewed themselves as people who knew Jesus. You know, they were baptized when they were kids, and they received their communion, and they got their confirmation. They'd, they'd run the, 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 the normal spiritual pathway, but they knew that something was missing. They lacked the sort of confidence, the sort of settled peace that a genuine follower of Christ would have. Listen, it doesn't matter where, how you got to where you are right now. The question is, what are you going to do next? What is your next step? And I think many of you here would not be able to describe yourself as having great spiritual confidence or vitality. You really wouldn't say that you have rivers of living water flowing from you. So for us, to become the me that I want to be. We need to start at the source of spiritual vitality. So open, if you would, in a Bible to John chapter 7, verse 37. John 7, 37. Where Jesus claims that he is the source of spiritual vitality and refreshment. John chapter 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now let's put ourselves back there 2,000 years ago. Just kind of imagine that you were part of this great crowd. And I'm not even talking about the crowd sitting right there at that moment. But even the crowd that had celebrated tabernacles for so many generations, that was the feast. 
it's still celebrated to this day. Every September, the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And it's during this feast that the Jews celebrate God's provision for their people. After they escaped slavery in Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was there that they had to live in tents, wandering around the wilderness. With the great fear that they wouldn't survive those wanderings. To celebrate God's provision, the Jews party for seven days by building forts outside of their homes. And some people liken it to like a harvest festival. You know, there's, there's uh, food and there's music and there's dancing, but it's way more than a harvest festival. This became one of the most joyful celebrations in the life of Israel. Because they were wandering in the wilderness. They were hungry. They were thirsty. Drought and dying of thirst was a constant fear. And at some very significant moments, God provided food and protection and water. In one amazing miracle, Moses, who had been leading them out of Egypt, out of slavery, he struck a rock and the rock produced water. And it just flowed into their midst so that they wouldn't die of thirst. It was an incredible time to be watching the hand of God in the nation of Israel. And that's why they would celebrate tabernacles. That's how it began. It's also part of the reason why water played such a huge part in celebrating tabernacles. So you have to kind of imagine the scene. It would begin every morning of the seven days, the priest would go over to the pool of Siloam and he would dip a pitcher into the pool and he would scoop out all of this water. He would be surrounded by all of the other priests and, you know, the choir from the temple and all of the people, and he would hold it up and he would say, with joy you shall draw water from the well of salvation. And there would be horns trumpeting, the shofar, the ram's horn, they'd be blowing up, making all of this ruckus, and the crowds would be kind of all there, excited and making a big, uh, you know, a big noise and a big celebration, and they would have these branches and uh, they would be rattling these branches with all these twigs and branches all strung up together and they would hold fruit up over their head talking about the abundance of God and the people would be singing the Hallel out of, out of the Psalms all together and they'd be coming up from the pool of Siloam and they would all process in this great big raucous party up to the temple. They would get up to the temple and the people would continue to shout, give thanks to the Lord. This is a huge party. And then when they got to the temple, it was around the time for another offering to be made. It was the offering of, of wine that was poured out. And because this offering and that offering were going to be happening at the same time, they would do just that. The priests would gather together and one would pour out the water and another one would pour out the wine. And the wine and the water would, would be poured into the ground as an offering to God. Some of you are thinking, wait, wine and water being mixed together like wine, like the blood and the water that flowed and all this other imagery that we can't really develop here this morning because we, we, we don't have time, but it's really rich stuff. There's so much going on here at this celebration. It looked backward, but it began to look forward as well. See, it was more than simply about the wanderings in the wilderness. It became not a remembrance only, but a promise, a promise that one day we would not have to wander anymore in this life. Tabernacles became associated with the day that we would never again have to wander in the metaphorical 
wilderness. It started to be used in the prophetic literature about the last days when the Messiah would come, when he would rule and reign and beautiful things would happen on the planet. For instance, Zechariah 14, he says, on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea, half of it west to the Mediterranean, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. Then the survivors from all the nations will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. See, he's pointing to a future date when we would have a permanent home with God in the new heaven and the new earth. We wouldn't have to wander anymore in this wilderness of a world. But all the world would come together and celebrate tabernacles. Not just the Jewish people, but all of us together. It even shows up at the, it even shows up at the very end, the same imagery of water at the very, very end in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we long for, the day where we don't wander anymore and we experience all of the beauty and the perfections of the messianic kingdom. Such a great, great, rich hope. Now, the text that we read said, on the last and greatest day of the festival, the rabbi, Jesus, stands up when all of this is going on. I like to picture it happening right when the water is being poured out, right, right when the wine is being poured out, it's being mixed and it's being offered to God right there at the end of this incredible festival, the last and greatest day, the rabbi stands up and Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It says he got up with a loud voice, so he shouted it out to the crowd. He said, listen. This is about me. This isn't about Moses and the rock and the water. That was all about me. This isn't about the, the prophet and, and the promises. You don't have to worry about that and wonder what that was about. That was all about me. I'm the river that flowed out of Eden. I'm the river that will, will, will come out of the rock. It's out of my side that blood and water will flow and, and redeem you. See, he's, he's making the most incredible and audacious claim imaginable. All of this celebration, all of this festival, it's, it was to tell you about me, and I'm here now. And you'll never have to thirst again. You'll never have to wander again. Jesus wants us to experience this spiritual vitality and refreshment. Look back in verse 38. He said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, the rivers of living water will flow from within them. When it says within them, it's, it's a word that's used there. The word is belly, so it's your gut. And I'm reading in John Ortberg's book, and he starts making a big deal about this. And I'm like, John, it's, 
It's just a, he's saying it comes from within you. Don't be like making a big deal about the gut. And he starts talking about the fact that there's a brain in the gut, the second brain. I'm like, this is ludicrous. I'm like, you're going to, why are you even saying, like, you're really great. You're a brilliant teacher and a great exegete. You're really smart. He's actually a psychiatrist, like a psychologist or something. I'm like, this is so odd. So just on a whim, I Google the thing, brain in the gut. I didn't even know what to Google, right? Sure enough, it's true. There's a brain in the gut. I never knew this. This is Scientific American. It's actually all over the website. And they're saying, all over the internet, it's actually one of the cutting edge areas of, of modern research into the human uh, system and how we operate. There are just incredible, there's an incredible density of neurons in the gut. It's not the kind of neurons that we process like cognitive thought, but it's a whole system that's related through incredibly powerful uh, uh, nerves that run back from the vein, you know, the whole vagus vein, the whole, you know, people get, they get kind of woozy and stuff. It's all related to this. Or when you get butterflies in your stomach, it's all related to a deeper sense of well-being or anxiety and stress. It's all wrapped up in the gut, and it's all of these neurons. And, and he was speculating that Jesus chose this language for a reason that he didn't just randomly pick belly to say from within you. He could have used heart, he could have used the womb, he could have used anything, and he chose belly because, in fact, there is a way in which the brain in the gut can produce feelings of well-being or distress that go deeper than the mind. They're somehow more visceral, a type of well-being that goes beyond the brain. It's fascinating. You could almost say that it's a piece that passes understanding because it bypasses the brain. I think this is why the Christian faith can give you a spiritual vitality and a refreshment despite your circumstances. You know, we're trying to figure out how to become the me I want to be. And Jesus says that it is in that very deepest place. It's in that very deepest place of you that he is going to produce this vitality. He's going to put the living water there. So what is that living water that comes out of our belly, out of our gut? Well, he tells us in verse 39, by this he meant the spirit. So the living water is, the, the, is God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, that can take up residence inside of a person's soul, and it can flow in us and through us and around us in incredibly mystical but powerful ways. So how do we get this living water? Well, we get it, as he tells us in verse 38, whoever believes in me. Now, when some of you became followers of Christ, you might have been introduced to the bridge diagram. So I'm going to wow you with some of my artistic ability here um, because, you know, I just know how much you love it when I draw because I am, here we go. So here we go. So you, some of, this is years, this is old school now. So some of you will remember this and others who've never heard it before. But they would draw a diagram and they would say, listen, you are on one side of this great chasm and on the other side of this great chasm, is God. And you can't get to God because down here is death. Eternal separation from God. And what you're trying to do throughout your whole life 
whether you realize it or not, is get to the other side so that you could be with your creator again. And we try all sorts of things to get there. We try good works, we try religion, you know, we try philosophy or morality, whatever it might be. We try all of these different things to get there. Some of you know, you, some of you remember this. Like somebody did this, they took a napkin out and they drew this for you years ago. They don't use it too much anymore, uh, but it's really, really interesting and cool still in some ways. A little simplistic, but it does some great stuff because right here now it says, well, then how do you get over there? And it says, of course, well, the only way to get to God is the cross. Because if you have faith in Christ, he will make certain that you avoid death, spiritual separation from God, and you receive eternal life. The bridge diagram, it's a great old tool to help us understand how we get the living water. Of course, Jesus said this right here, right? Verse 38, whoever believes in me. That's how you find salvation. It's about faith in Jesus. Trusting him, not how hard you work, not how good you are. That's what you try to do. That's what all the world religions tell you to do, but it's not what Jesus said. He said, whosoever believes in me. So we love the bridge diagram. So that's how you get the spirit. But then how do you keep the spirit? Because what many of us have experienced is that though we felt like at one point we were in the flow of God, we're not really there now. You know, I mean, maybe you feel like you're still okay with God, but things aren't great. They're just okay. You wouldn't really describe yourself as in the flow of the Spirit. You wouldn't say that you have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Maybe you say to yourself, you know, my prayer life is erratic. My Bible reading sometimes is, is it's dull. I get frustrated with my kids for no good reason. I get pouty with my wife because she doesn't make me the center of her universe. I get jealous when others do better than me or I feel wounded because my friends don't prioritize me. I get judgmental when people don't live up to my standards. And you think to yourself, but this isn't the me that I want to be. What happened? That wasn't who I set out to be, and yet I still see it in my heart. See, God's plan for me is to become the best version of me that is possible. And right now, there are two versions. There's the one that God wants me to be, and there's who I really am. And this gets frustrating for us. So, of course, we think we need to figure out how to close the gap. So we try harder. We study more. We listen to another preacher podcast. We serve more. We, we discipline ourselves more. We try to be nicer. We kind of have all of these ideas, and we work and work and work and work and work. But we find it exhausting. In fact, we have, I have a graphic for this. This is what we do. We work really hard. We try harder, and it leads us to fatigue. The fatigue will ultimately cause us to say, you know what, I'm out. I just can't do it. I quit. But when we quit, we end up feeling guilt because we know what we ought to do and who we want to be, and so we feel guilt about it. That guilt causes us to hide from God. Maybe one day in the future you say, I really got to get back. I really got to try again. So you start trying again. You try harder, and you try harder, and you try harder, and you make all these promises and all of these commitments only to fatigue yourself even more. And you quit. It's followed by guilt. Then you start hiding and pulling away from God. And we re repeat this cycle time and time and time again. And I think many Christians actually live most of their lives fatigued or giving up or living with guilt or feeling like failures. 
Some of us try to fake it at this point. You know, if we could just kind of keep up the, the facade, you know, I'll just kind of use more religious language. And when I pray, I'll throw out a whole lot more like Jesus's and God's and hallelujahs. And I'll, you know, I'll use like more of that kind of stuff. And maybe if I fake it till I make it, you know, maybe that'll be enough. And others say, no, I'm not going to fake it. I'm out. They just start to move away. I mean, they, they give up. But it's not that they, that they hope that they're, you know, that they're, they still don't hope that they're going to go to heaven when they die. They still do. They're still trusting in Jesus. They just sort of think of themselves as second-rate Christians. They sort of get comfortable languishing. You remember the bridge diagram, right? So there's another way that this gap starts to appear. See, you could view yourself as the me that really is here. This is current me. Then there's another you that lives out there, and this is the me that God wants you to be. And you see a gap between the two, and you don't know how to bridge that gap, but you do the only thing you know how to do. You try harder. You work real hard. You feel guilt. Go to church some more. You just keep trying, 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 trying. Because now somehow you feel like you were saved by grace, but you're kept by works. You're saved by God's mercy, but you're kept in the flow by how hard you work and how good you are. But the scriptures tell us time and again, it's actually the same thing. The cross of Jesus is the way to get back to God to go back to the cross, to continue to seek his grace, seek his forgiveness, to get back into the flow of the Spirit so that you could become the version of you that you want and God wants. And we think he's going to get angry, he's going to get upset, he's going to, but that's what the cross is all about. It's about his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And like a loving dad, he's coming alongside and he's saying, come on, we can do this. He's not here to whack you down and beat you up and make you feel that. He's saying, come on, go back to the cross. Seek for, don't hide. Look for forgiveness. Look for mercy. Look for grace. The way that John Ortberg phrases it, he says, God's plan for my, God's plan is for my daily life to be given, guided, guarded, and energized by the grace of God, to live in grace is to flow in the spirit. See, every single moment of the day, we have an opportunity to keep in the flow of the spirit. Throughout the day, dozens, maybe hundreds of times, we get to step into the flow of the spirit. Jesus is bigger than you. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than you. You're not God. He is. Our job is to simply not get in God's Way. God is already at work and he's already doing an incredible thing in your soul. We need to stay connected to the work he's already doing. He is more committed to your transformation than you are. And he's delighted every step you take toward that perfect picture. And if he's already committed, then we simply need to yield each moment of the day to the work that God is already doing. And that's how we get back into the flow. 
not fight against this current of God that he is, he is producing in your life. So, you know, you guys know that my, one of my hobbies is hunting. And so I go, some of you heard this. So I, I hunt, uh, I do waterfowl hunting. And I'm up in the North Shore a while ago. And um, I was, I took my kayak out. I loaded it with all of my gear. It's bitter cold weather. And so um, you're, I'm out there and I, I load everything up and I find a great place out in like Smithtown Harbor or something like that. And uh, I got a mug from Chris and Anya this year. It said, world's most okayest hunter. And it's true, because I'm actually not really good. And uh, some of you are like, I'm so glad to hear that. But uh, so I get out there anyway, and I set up, and I put my kayak and all of my gear off to the side and around the bend to kind of hide it from the birds and stuff like that, and it's off there. Well, anyway, on the North Shore, the current is, like, really aggressive, and it's, it's a big swing. It's like a seven, eight-foot tide change. So I set up in a nice uh, dry place, and uh, I decide, you know, I'm going to kind of multitask, which is why I'm a terrible hunter. So I start reading a book, probably one from John Ortberg. So I was totally engrossed. And I got the shotgun across my lap. And I don't know what I'm expecting I'm going to do there, right? Because I'm really just reading with a shotgun on my lap. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just reading and reading. I'm really engrossed in it. And all of a sudden, I hear some, some geese, honk, 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 flying. I'm like, no way. <laughs> like, this is crazy. They even told me they were coming. And so I, I like try to get up. I realize, you know, the water's already now up to like my knees because the current's coming in fast. And so I'm trying to find a place to put the book, but I really can't. I kind of got to throw it in the reeds and I, I turn around and I'm looking for them and I see the, the geese coming off in the distance and underneath them, I'm like, what the heck is that in the water? Oh, that's my kayak and all my gear fast drifting away. <laughs> I'm like, ah! So I, I like have to put my gun down and I'm, you know, so I'm in, a, I'm in waders and they're all the way up. So I'm going out and I'm trying to chase this thing down in the water. I'm like, uh, 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 it's all cold and icy and the water's getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It's right at the point where like the, the waders end right up here. And I'm like, these things are about to fill. Like I, I'm almost there, but like they're going to start filling up. I'm never going to get this kayak back. I just reach it. I just get it. I try to pull it back, and I can't. I'm in the current, and so I'm trying. I try to get it to the ground where I can touch. I can't really. I'm struggling to get my feet back on the ground. I climb into it. I got a really big kayak. I climb into it, and I try to spin the thing around. I start paddling, paddling, paddling. Nope, I'm going backwards. Not even a chance to fight this thing, and I'm exhausted from chasing this thing down into the water. I just can't. I'm like, you know what? Just go. Take me where you will take me. <laughs> And eventually, you know, I kind of got into the current. It brought me close enough to the land. I kind of paddled over, and it was like a mile away from where my other stuff was. It was crazy. I was so far away. But, of course, what I figured out here is you can't fight the current, and it's not helpful to. you got to sometimes go with the flow, and that's really what Jesus is calling us to do in these moments, to stay aware and submitted and obedient and delighting in the very presence of God. Just listen to this. Listen to the way John Ortberg says it. Don't read it, but just listen to it. He says, The Spirit is available to whisper to us thoughts of love and joy and peace and patience every moment of our life. Right now, all we have to do is stop, ask, and listen. That's what we need to do. Stop, ask, listen. And we go about this life, and either we do the things that open us up to the Spirit's influence, or we shut it out. And we get dozens and dozens of opportunities to do this every single day. You go home and you yell at your kids and the Spirit says, go apologize and get back in the flow. Will you yield to it? You binge watch TV late last night. You're hitting snooze over and over and over again. 
Rather than getting up and reading and praying and the Spirit says, hey, why don't you get up and spend some time with me? I miss you. Will you yield or will you not? Because you can step right back into the flow of the Spirit. Or you can stay out fighting the current. Your spouse is frustrating you with all sorts of insensitive behaviors. And the Spirit says, it's time to sit down and talk about it. But you say, ah, I don't really like conflict. And, you know, I'd rather just sort of simmer and stew in my own little bitterness. The Spirit says, no, man, you want the relationship back. Come on. Will you yield to it and get back into the flow of the Spirit? The unpopular kid at school is looking particularly sullen today, and the Spirit says, go encourage her. Go ahead and encourage her. And you'll think, ah, man, if I go and encourage her, what are the other people going to say? And it's really not good for my reputation, and I should just sort of avoid her. And the Spirit's like, come on. Just do what I'm calling you to do. Get back in the flow. See, all of these dozens and dozens of moments, we get to step back into the flow. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at all sorts of examples like this and a whole lot more as we unpack how we can listen to the promptings of the Spirit. We're going to be talking about how to lay the foundation for staying in the Spirit. We're going to talk about the patterns that we get into that break our flow in the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is always ready to guide you toward the best version of yourself, toward God's best version of yourself. We just need to get out of the way. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and they're going to lead us in a couple of songs as we reflect on these ideas and more. And as they come up, I just want to pray for us that God would do this in our lives and even so much more. Would you guys stand as, as we pray? Father, I am asking that you would stir our hearts up even now. You alone, Lord, know where each one of us is at. You know the history, our past. You know our struggles. You know how many times we have failed and how often we feel guilty to even come back and ask for forgiveness again. And yet you, in your gracious love for us, you tell us, Lord, that not only do we find your love through grace and forgiveness and mercy, but, Lord, we, we keep in it too. We stay in it. We can continue to follow you and to pursue you. And no matter how many times we fail, we have the cross guaranteeing us access back to you. Lord, that's what we want, to stop fighting you, to get back in the flow of the Spirit. We want to see that living water flow through us. May we participate in the healing of the nations because of your spirit flowing in us and through us and out to a world that could so desperately need your love. We pray that you'd make it more and more real of each of us. Amen.